Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto the power who gave it. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 12 Verses 7 through 9. Hello, I'm David Getson. Design is a localized increase in order, applied force by will, imparting form to matter. Entropy, destined to foil even the most deft of nature's creations inexorably works all matter back to a closing stillness. Homeostasis of prime substance, literally and figuratively, cosmic dust. But the rich exchange of life and death before us ensures that this polarity is cyclical, within and among itself. As the universe behaves for now, the nested overlaps of order and disorder, rise and fall, present a homeohresis, the view to steady action, dynamic return. We ended our last episode on a note of the Bauhaus's yearning to live amongst the stuff of the future. For centuries, the best thing to build with was stone. But stone always returns to sand. Even something as enduring as a pyramid or a Greek column is dissolving, slowly, right before our eyes. In 1920, Wood was Grotheus's declared material of the present. To synthesize these qualities of past and present, wood and earth, to form the future, would take fire, which was placed at the center of homes in the Bauhaus's planned utopian settlement. And fire, thus applied to earth, when forged with enough heat, declared for a future of glass. But were the early denizens of the Bauhaus truly concerned with such esoteric ideas? Would they have been interested to work these symbols into daily life as part of a yearning to push humanity into a new era? We believe that they and their expressionist precursors were. Rather precise, formal similarities we have discovered between the Bauhaus Settlement's plan and turn-of-the-century work by Peter Behrens support this connection. Our LapsusLima.com entry for this episode displays a series of images. First up, we show Walter Detterman's now familiar settlement plan, the elongated trapezoid we analyzed last episode. But why 
does this plan take the shape it does? Why are the bottom corners cut off on the sides? At first, it may seem arbitrary or a practical means of radial orientation. Consider, however, that a glass jewel, a faceted crystalline monument, was to be set at the focal point of the layout. Now look at the map upside down, as we have turned it for you in the second image. A symbolic meaning, instrumental to the use of glass as centerpiece, had been obscured from any viewer lacking knowledge of this form's source. Rotated 180 degrees, it becomes clear that the Bauhaus Siedlung is laid out in the profile of a diamond, even as it differs from more usual cuts by way of a deep pavilion, that being the triangular base, and a taller crown at the top. It shares the same overall profile of the ring-mounted diamonds so familiar today, but stretched out into an elongated form. A deeper pavilion on an actual cut diamond leads to a more triangular and splintered look to the top of the crown as the relatively longer facets below create triangles with more acute angles. A modified method of cutting diamonds was relatively new at the time of the development of the Bauhaus Siedlung plan. Around the year 1900, the, from our perspective, simpler facets of an old European cut began to give way to the shifted arrangement of surfaces of the so-called brilliant cut that we are more accustomed to due to turn-of-the-century advances in diamond saw and lathe technology. As the 20th century dawned, a diamond cut in the new style would have been a powerful embodiment of how the application of new technology to traditional craft principles elevated art objects to new heights. In 1919, Diamond cutter Marcel Tolkovsky, then a young man at the start of what would prove to be a very long career, analyzed these new brilliant cut methods and formalized the consequential geometry in his calculations. Because light entering a diamond from any direction is modified by all of the facets acting in concert, Adjusting any one facet will affect the system of facets as a whole. Tolkovsky's method of analyzing diamond cuts comes staggeringly close to cybernetics, an approach that looks at a complex system not as an assembly to be constructed, but as balance to be achieved. The light seen to sparkle in a diamond, is not a steady state. When the facets are properly related and set in geometric harmony to each other, the desired color, fire, and sparkle is revealed. The system of cuts is a conduit that points to 
a homeohresis, a steady action of ever-changing light conditions that, nonetheless, fall within the desired parameters of how we want a diamond to behave. And even setting correlation of historical parallels aside for a moment, here is where theory and practice of architecture or of diamond cutting intersect. These crafts apply force to material with the objective of countering entropy with organization, thus creating a system where steady action falls within projected parameters. The end result of a cut diamond in form, brilliance, and color, or fire as it is sometimes called, is dependent upon how the objective angles of the facets reflect and refract light, especially as regards the relation of each facet to every other facet. Change one aspect, and the whole system is altered. Optimizing the size and angle of each facet becomes a matter of neither assembly nor reduction, but of tuning. The sparkle and fire, the affect of the whole, is incumbent upon, and therefore imminent to, the actualization of a part. And though the consequences are hardly uniform, this is as true for one facet as it is true for each and every other one. The typical number of 58 facets in a modern diamond is a more complex interrelation of variables than the 21 notoriously assigned to a tea kettle but 56 is orders of magnitude fewer variables than what an architect must deal with in a house, and especially in a community or city. Since the ambition to reform and reimagine the built environment was so sincere, these modernist architects had set a tremendous task before themselves, and in a very real sense, were obliged to confront math problems for which convenient mathematical methods had not yet been invented. They would eventually get much more satisfactory results with chairs than they would with dwellings. And this exponential scaling of variables is a big part of the reason why. However, Seizing upon the symbol of the diamond, the analogy of the interrelation of illuminated facets did make a promising start. By 1901, inspiration had been revealed and problems diagnosed. In this teleological respect, the Bauhaus was hardly starting from zero. The roots of the Bauhaus's early dreams were firmly planted in precedence begun a generation earlier. The diamond as symbol, 
an independent colony of artists. Even the ritualized chanting enacted at the topping-out party of the Zomerfeld House were not chosen in isolation. The most immediate, but certainly not the last link, is how the proportions and angles in Walter Detterman's plan line up precisely to iconography that Peter Behrens, under whom Gropius apprenticed, included in the companion book to his 1901 opening festival of the Darmstadt Artists' Colony. Our third and fourth images on this episode's page show a diamond overlaid on the settlement plan. The fifth and sixth images show the source of the iconography that so strongly correlates to Detterman's design. The central diamond lines up to the nested geometry of the plan at several scales, determining those sloping angles by way of the deep pavilion. And it appears that the radiating layout of the L-shaped workshops was partly inspired by very similar shapes in the decorative motif that surrounds the book's central icon. This diamond image enjoys pride of place as the frontispiece to Peter Behrens's book. The title is Ein Dokument Deutscher Kunst, die Ausstellung der Künstlerkolonie in Darmstadt, 1901, Festschrift. That is, a document of German art, the exhibition of the artist's colony in Darmstadt, 1901, commemorative edition. And thank you to the University of Heidelberg, who put a ton of work into digitizing this book and giving us an online version of it. We provide a link on our webpage. Historian Frederick J. Schwartz notes in his own commentary on the colony's opening ceremony that this utopian community presented a group of seven artists, led by Josef Maria Olbrich, an Austrian Jugendstil architect whom Adolf Loos despised, representing one of the last great cults of l'art pur l'art, seeking to build an insular world of aesthetic perfection. Ulbrich designed his own house in the colony, as did Behrens. However, to call the colony one of the last great cults of art for art's sake is achingly close to calling it the first great cult of something. That these artists themselves were not sure what to name, but were certain was arriving, and soon. The activities they arranged for the opening festival demonstrated that they were reaching beyond what focus on art alone provided. At the colony's grand opening on May 15, 1901, Ernst Ludwig, the Grand Duke of Hessen, and the grandson of Queen Victoria was present. His princely largesse had funded the artist's endeavors. The great legacy of his grandfather, Albert of Saxe-Coburg, 
must have been present in everyone's mind that day. This collection of seven artists could hardly compete with the impact of London's Great Exhibition of 1851 that set off an arguably still ongoing series of World's Fairs. Even so, the Grand Duke may have hoped his influence would advance the arts and culture for the 20th century as much as Prince Albert's coordination of the arts and industry impacted the second half of the 19th. And Peter Behrens was at the heart of this ambition. Join us as we see how Grotheus's teacher welcomed the 20th century and looked to the future that his students would define next on Lapsus Lima. <laughs>